You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow, as it assumes you have the necessary training, qualifications and experience to understand the concepts discussed as well as the technical language used. If you still decide to listen, please understand the information contained in this recording is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Any scenarios considered during this podcast are purely hypothetical and for illustrated purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. In the federal budget on 11 May, the government announced it will move to relax the residency requirements for self-managed super funds, which is actually something the industry has been asking for for quite some time. I'm your host, Craig Day, and here to talk to me about this important and very welcome development is Tim Sanderson, one of the senior technical services managers in the First Tech team. Hey, Tim. Hi, Craig. How are you? Not too bad. Yourself? Yeah, going well, thanks. It's a lovely day here to be sitting inside a dark room recording a podcast in Sydney. So we're going to be um, we're going to be talking about SMSF residency requirements. So the government actually came out with quite an important announcement for self managed shift funds, especially where we've got members either living overseas or potentially thinking about moving overseas with one of these fund types. Um, in terms of the residency requirements, so do you want to just go through and actually? elaborate on what the government announced last Tuesday night. Sure. So on budget night, the government announced, um, I think, two um, potentially significant changes to relax residency requirements um, for SMSFs and small APRA funds. Um, Mm -hmm. So the first is to extend the current safe harbour rule that applies to the central management and control test from two to five years, so a significantly longer uh, period. And, Mm -hmm. And also to remove uh, completely the active member test uh, that applies at the moment as well. Uh, okay. Yeah. A couple of interesting things there. First of all, so this is applying to small APRA funds as well. Th- that's right. Now, for central management control test purposes, which we'll look at, not really relevant for small APRA yeah. funds uh, or not, yeah, not really an issue, but certainly yeah, the active member test um, can apply as well. Um, right. Yeah. So, yeah, I suppose there when you think about it, uh, for a small APRA fund, they have to have an, an registrable superannuation entity. So that's the kind of this, the same type of trustee type as a, a large super fund. So those trustees are always going to be located in Australia. So it, it's more of the active member test that potentially impacts upon the small APRA fund. So, all right, so why? Why are they doing this? Uh, well, I, I think it, it's to provide much-needed um flexibility to enable um, enable trustees to potentially be overseas temporarily for longer and to not require people to use a separate fund while they're overseas and they're a non-tax resident to contribute to and have to have two funds during that period and then consolidate them when they come back from overseas. So I think... Okay, so what? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, go on, go on. Yeah, and, and I think the, the reason that's that's really important is because of the consequences for failing that test. Um, you, you've got to meet this um, the residency requirements at all times. If you don't, you become a non-resident super fund um, 
and you're a non-complying fund and then the tax rate uh, obviously changes from 15% to the uh, 45%. Right, yeah. So, And that's interesting, isn't it? Because um, to be a complying fund, you have to be a resident regulated fund. And to be a resident regulated fund, you have to satisfy these residency requirements. Now, this is an interesting one because I, I think this is, you know, when you've got a trustee of an SMSF that's been up to no good, the, the trustee or the ATO as the regulator get to make a call about whether they're going to revoke the complying status by taking into account a whole range of issues. But this one's interesting because if you fail any of these residency tests, then automatically that there's no discussion, there's no pleading your case. You are simply, you have failed to be a, a resident superannuation fund or what they define as an Australian superannuation fund. So by default, you cannot be a complying fund, so therefore your complying status is revoked. So it's actually quite a significant issue for a self-managed super fund. Now, when you said the, the the fund gets taxed at 45%, it's it's probably more than that, isn't it? So you're looking at both the income and the capital? Yeah, in the first year of non-compliance, an extra amount gets added into the fund's income and it basically removes any of the previous tax concessions that the fund had had access to. And so what it can mean is a 45% tax bill applies to potentially uh, a substantial amount of the assets of the fund, taxable component, if you like. Yeah, and an an interesting thing. So when when you think about failing these residency tests, obviously could have a massive impact on a person and their retirement. But but when you look at the the budget papers for this and, and the cost of changing these residency requirements, and I'll read it to you, says this measure is estimated to have a small but unquantifiable impact on the underlying cash balance over the forward estimates period. So this is something that makes virtually no difference whatsoever to the federal budget and yet could absolutely devastate a client's retirement. So this is the the reason why industry has for so long been asked for this to be changed. Um, and it's just for the first time the government seems to have listened and said, yep, um, these rules are a bit draconian in in the SMSF space, so uh, let's look at how we can, for me, relax the rules, as you said, so probably allowing someone to to live and work overseas for a bit longer, but I think also for the active member test to to remove what I consider to be a real gotcha moment. So someone just doing something that they don't think is wrong and really, when you look at an objective, there's no mischief being done, but that could inadvertently cause their fund to, to fail the active member test, which we'll look at in a, a little while, um, and completely blow up their retirement. So um, so I think these are really, really welcome developments. So, right, so let's just, uh, first of all, when? I was just about to jump into, let's understand these reasons. When is this going to apply from? Yeah, so the budget paper indicates that it's proposed to take place from the start of the financial year after it gets legislated. And the government's indicated that they expect that to happen before 1 July 2022. So a a potential proposed start time of 1 July 2022 based on that. Right. If it, if I suppose if, if they did manage to get it through before 30 June this year, it would take effect from, from 1 July this year. But I think when you read between the lines of that, that, um, budget paper announcement talking about 1 July 22, or they expect it to be, you can probably pretty much read into that. They don't intend to actually introduce this legislation for debate until next year sometime. All right, so let's go through um, the residency rules, just do a recap to understand how they currently work 
and therefore what's changing that what that means for people. So um, there's three residency tests in there. Do you want to take us through the first one? Yeah, that's right. So, and probably just to mention, firstly, there is um, these are the way the the residency rules work. But it, it is worth noting that the government provided, um, or the ATO provided, some sort of temporary relief for the residency tests for people stranded overseas as as a result oh, yeah. of COVID. So, right. what they basically said is, look, if you the central management and control test, for example, if you would otherwise pass that, but you're in danger of of failing that because you're stranded overseas and you can't get back, um, th- then it's not going to apply compliance resources to to look at whether that residency test is satisfied. Yeah, God, can you imagine? Yeah. You're desperately trying to get back to Australia and you can't get on a plane or you keep on getting turfed off the booking at the last minute and uh, and then the ATO says, sorry, you've been overseas too long. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that um, be a, just an absolute disaster? Absolutely. Um, um, yeah, so, okay, so look. Taking that into account, let's think. just think about how these rules normally apply then. Yep. So the, the first requirement is a, a fairly straightforward one. So either the fund is established in Australia um, and that looks really at where the, um, the trustee has established the fund and made the initial contribution, for example. So did that happen in Australia um, mm-hmm. or an asset of the fund is, is located in Australia? So whether that's a bank account, a property, um, et cetera. Right. Okay. Um, so that's a reasonably so fund established in Australia. So what did you say that was? That's um, your first contribution made in Australia, is it? Or yeah, where so you signed? How does that work? Yeah. So if the initial contribution made to establish the fund is is paid to and accepted by the trustee of the fund in Australia, um, that right. that test would be satisfied. Okay. Um, and once it's been established in Australia, that that's test it. is always passed. Yeah, so that's the really easy one that most people don't really need to worry about. Even if you, um, if that first contribution was accepted by a trustee when they were overseas, all you need to do is keep a bank account in Australia, and uh, right. and you've satisfied that requirement. So then the the next two tests is where it actually starts to impact a lot more on people. So the second test is the central management control must be ordinarily located in Australia. So talk us through that. Well. When they say ordinarily, what does ordinarily mean? Yeah, so well, so firstly, the central management control, that's really looking at where the high-level and strategic decisions of the fund are being made. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that would include things like formulating, reviewing and updating the investment strategy, um, reviewing and monitoring the fund's investments, um, determining how the fund's assets are going to be used to pay benefits. Um, so that can be set apart from just the day-to-day administrative functions like accepting contributions, for example. Yep. So, so in terms of ordinarily, um, that the ATO in its ruling basically said um, if the central management control, those so those high-level decisions are regularly, usually or customarily exercised in Australia, then that will be ordinarily um, but what it also said is, look, where that central management and control is temporarily being exercised outside Australia, that won't prevent the fact that it is still being ordinarily exercised in Australia. Um, and so that would allow potentially someone, trustees, to temporarily temporarily go overseas and exercise mm-hmm. the central management and control without that ordinarily in Australia test being failed. 
Um, and there's actually a, a few years ago now, the government introduced a, a safe harbour guideline to basically say, look, if it's temporarily outside Australia for less than two years, then that will be fine. Um, uh, that will still ordinarily be be made in Australia. Um, the ATO did say that in its ruling, it can be temporarily outside for longer than that safe harbour period. Um, the trustee would then just need to have some clear evidence so that that absence was temporary. Right. Yeah. So that's and that when we talk to people about this one, that's that's what I say is generally, you know, you're going to be as long as you're going away temporarily. So for those people that. And uh, uh, departing straight permanently, they don't get the you know as soon as you go overseas, that's it. You file the central management control test. So, for people um, deciding that they've you know, moved to Australia for a period, they were going to live here, and they've decided no, they're going to move back home for whatever reason. Uh, you know, maybe they've come from you know England or the US or India or somewhere like that, and they've decided to move back permanently. They can't keep their self managed super fund in Australia because they're departing permanently and they'd be exercising the central management control outside of Australia, not, not on a temporary basis. Yep. So, um, and when we say talk to people about that, this two-year requirement, um, because when people go overseas, you know, plans change. They're, they're thinking about going for, let's say, you know, a 12-month employment contract and then the employer says, oh, well, do you want to extend for six months or 12 months? And, you know, the person's living in Europe and having a fantastic life and, you know, yes, absolutely want to extend. Um, as soon as you get outside that two-year safe harbour, you've lost the protection of the just, you know, it will kind of be considered that your absence is only temporary. You don't need to prove it. But once you go over that two years, what you're now hoping is what, objective evidence that you've got to support the fact that you think your absence is temporary, the ATO agrees with that. And if they don't agree with it, it's massive consequences because you, you become a non-complying fund. So that's that's what we generally say. You can go away longer than two years, but you want to have really solid evidence uh, that your absence is only temporary. Um, so what are they... Um, what are they announcing here that they're going from two to five years? Yeah, two to five years, that safe harbour guideline. So it will probably just be, I guess, easier under that proposal to evidence that the ad, to be able to um, convince the ATO that an absence is temporary in that, you know, two to four year period. Yeah. Okay. So they're just going, well, I've been away four years. Um, you know, I, I, I've maintained assets and family and et cetera. And my, my employment contract is only temporary. It's not a permanent posting overseas. Um, you're fine. Um, and I think that's great because it does cover off on those situations where people do go away for a 12 month posting and their employment is extended. And when you think about that, two years is actually quite a short time for someone to uproot their whole, whole life and move overseas to work or study. Um, that two years will be up in a flash. You know, I think I remember when I moved overseas for uh, for after my my university studies, and that two years I was away for two and a half years. That two years just disappeared in a flash. So, taking it out to five years does give people a much more flexibility and um, and reduces the risk that they could actually be deemed to be exercising central management control outside Australia, and that their absence is no longer temporary and has become permanent. Yeah. Um, and then so. What, oh, the, the last one is the active member test. Yeah. Run me through that. So that's uh, the the way that's satisfied. There's really two things that um, two th two ways you can meet this test. So firstly, there is no active members in the fund, or uh, secondly, at least half 
or at least 50% of all of the amounts that would be paid for active members if they voluntarily cease to be members um, needs to be attributable to members who are Australian residents for tax purposes. So as an example, if we've got an, um, balances in account-based pensions um, only, uh, or, and sorry, accumulation accounts which are being contributed to, um, mm -hmm. they would be active members and 50% uh, of all of those amounts of the active members held by members who are um, Australian residents for tax purposes. Right. So if, I, so if I think about that, so let's just say we've got um, a three-member fund to make it nice and easy. Yep. Um, let's say they've all got $100,000 benefits each, which they probably wouldn't, but let's just say for the, the sake of this example, um, and they're all contributing. And let's say this is a husband and wife and they're, their child, let's call it the son, and the son goes overseas. Now, what they're going to do is they're going to say, okay, are you all contributing? Yes, you are. Okay, let's just say the son has continues yep. to make contributions when they're overseas. So they're then going to say, okay, what are the active members that belong to the Australian resident members? And that's mum and dad. So that's 200,000 out of 300,000. So clearly that is more than, that's 66% of $300,000. So the active member test would be passed in that situation. Yes. Right? But on the flip side, let's say it's mum and dad that goes away and they continue to be contributors and the son stays in Australia, then on the reverse, the, the, the active members, the benefits that belong to active members that are Australian residents, is that in this case, it's only the son. That's 100,000. So that's only 33% of the, the $100,000 or $300,000 fund. And so therefore, that's less than 50%. So we fail the active member test. That's right. Assuming that the parents, um, upon going overseas, are going to remain active members. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what do, what do a lot of funds do here to to prevent this happening? Yeah. So, and just to cover off first, so an active member is one who is a contributor or has contributions made on their behalf, and that includes rollovers. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily just saying um, you are physically contributing at the time. Um, it actually looks at um, the uh, all of the circumstances, including the members intention established by objective evidence. So it could look at the pattern of contributions that are being made um, throughout that time um, and therefore a member could potentially still be considered a contributor despite not having made a contribution at a particular time. So yeah, for example, an example, yeah, yeah, an example of this one um, that we thought of is let's say you're going overseas and you've got an automatic debit coming out of your bank account every month to make a to contribute make a contribution into a super fund and you go overseas without cancelling that then the intention objectively assessed there is because you've left that in place you are at the time that you're overseas you, you're still intending to contribute because there's evidence that there's a an automatic withdrawal set up on your bank account for that to occur um, that that actually could mean that you intend to contribute, so therefore you're a contributor, so therefore your your benefits get thrown into the active member test here. That's right. And so the way um, the way people get around that, or sorry, the way people safeguard that um, would be really two ways. Firstly, the, there could be a, an amendment to the trustee to prevent um, 
people contributing where there are non-resident for tax purposes. Um, mm-hmm. And the other way would be that the member would provide uh, the trustee with a letter um, prior to going overseas, just indicating that they are not going to be a contributor to the fund during that period while they're overseas. Yeah, we, we saw a lot of this kind of strategy being discussed a, a couple of years ago, um, that the way to protect you is actually to put a deed amendment in to say that the trustees cannot accept a contribution from anyone that is outside of Australia just to to protect the fund from this active member test. Because as I said, Bo, I think right at the beginning, an innocent con- contribution here from someone overseas that don't understand this rule could completely blow up the fund. So if it is mum and dad that have moved overseas, technically you can still satisfy the active member test by making sure that they don't contribute to the fund or they're not contributors. Um, But if they don't understand this rule and mum or dad just simply makes, or both of them I suppose in this situation, makes a small $100 contribution each for some reason, then that blows up the fund, right? So um, a lot of lawyers and and, uh, industry, you know, technical people were saying, well, one of the ways you could prevent that from occurring is just put a deed amendment in to say that the trustee is actually not allowed to accept a contribution for someone overseas. And that way it, it just puts a firewall between that member and the SMSF to say, well, sorry, that that they're not an active member because they're, they're not actually not allowed to make contributions to this fund. So in that situation, if you want to make a contribution, go and contribute to a large fund. Now, funnily enough, the, the active member test still applies to large funds exactly the same, but large funds have massive amounts of members in Australia. So, you know, from a colonial first state perspective, I, I mean, we're aware of it, but it's, it's considered an extraordinarily low risk for the fund. Um, so... It's a big issue for a self-managed super fund. So, yep. what have they? Um, what have they changed here? They're just proposing to remove the active member test, is what I understand. Is that yeah, right? to just just get rid of it completely. So that's basically going to allow, um, if I am overseas as a member of an SMSF, I can continue contributing um, to the fund, and um, you know the strategy of having to have another fund to receive my contributions while I'm overseas um, is no longer needed. I can just contribute to my SMSF. Um, Actually, when you, when you think about it, this would also allow, once these rules come in, you could roll those benefits sitting in that other, you know, large public offer fund. You could roll that back into the SMSF at that point in time. You don't have to wait until you return to Australia. That's right, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, Um, I suppose there the important thing would just to be thinking about those deed amendments. If you have actually made those deed amendments, just go back and look at your deed, make sure that there's there's no, you know, firewall provision there that prevents you from making a contribution when you're overseas. If there is, you just simply need to get that amended. And then the other thing, I suppose, if you have written a letter to the trustee to say that you're not going to be a contributor, um, maybe write to your fund or write yourself a letter basically saying that you, you do now intend to contribute in accordance with these change rules. Is there anything else I need to think about here? Oh, look, probably just the only other thing to call out is um, it, it might not be happening anytime soon with the um, uh, the ban on people leaving Australia at the moment, but going forward under this proposal, what we might see is um, more people uh, who are overseas for periods of time um, in an SMSF, and that we may see more people buying foreign assets while they're overseas in on behalf oh, yeah. of their fund. Yeah. Um, and so some important things to be aware of there, I think, would be look, the fund's investment strategy and trust deed. Do they allow for that sort of foreign investment? It's going to be important to take into account um, foreign laws around, you know, for example, how those assets can be owned. 
um, and also how that sort of ownership and those foreign laws are going to interact with meeting your your CIS requirements and the audit audit requirements that apply each year. Yeah, you have, you're going to have to evidence ownership there, and then it's been held in the name of the of the fund. It's kind of, I suppose, like a you know property in New South Wales. You're not allowed to register your ownership as a trustee. Um, also, if you've got a corporate trustee, how does that work overseas? Yeah, interesting, interesting. So you just need to be very aware that if you do have clients now living overseas for longer, they may be tempted to invest in foreign assets a bit more. Just make sure that the fund's set up to be able to do that and understand how that's going to work from an admin and audit perspective. All right, Tim, I think we've covered just about everything. Thanks, yep. for, thanks for your input. No problem. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please remember these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, you need to remember that any scenarios considered during this podcast were for purely hypothetical and illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. And finally, you should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decision and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be reliable and accurate, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited or Commonwealth Bank Group of Companies, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.